Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Dr. Hannah Note about Russia's changing goals and relationships in the Middle East. Then, John, Natasha, and I talk about how U.S. policymakers should react. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Hannah Nutta is affiliated with the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, a research organization in Washington, D.C., Monterey, California, although she's talking to us from Berlin. Hannah, welcome to Babel. Thanks for having me. You have been spending a lot of time trying to understand Russia, trying to understand the Middle East, and both have gone through a, a fundamental change in relations since Russia invaded Ukraine last February. Looking broadly, how have Russia's goals in the Middle East changed with the Ukraine invasion? So I think in order to answer that question, we need to start by outlining what those interests in the Middle East were in the first place. So if we look at Russian interest in the Middle East, broadly speaking, Russia wanted to always keep bad things away from its own borders. So prevent the spillover of instability, of extremism from the Middle East to Russia, but then also draw a red line against what it perceived as Western fermented regime change or democracy promotion in the region, especially after Libya in 2011. More recently, there's been another dimension to Russian security interest in the region. I think Russia has also used its presence, especially in Syria, at the port of Tartus and the airbase at Hmaimim, in order to sort of complement an arc of deterrence vis-a-vis NATO. So basically to instrumentalize that presence in the Middle East in order to deter NATO. Economically, there have been some interests by the Russians in the region in the context of a broader diversification of economic ties, especially in the wake of the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and sanctions that were leveled against Russia by the West. But I think those economic interests have always been secondary to security interests. And the main areas here to note have been arms sales by Russia to the region, the building of nuclear power plants, grain exports, and Russian tourism, tourists going to Turkey and Egypt, for instance. And then there's been a status dimension. Russia has really tried to have a seat at the table, sort of on each and every conflict dossier in the region to signal that it is a great power. Now, those fundamental interests have not changed with the war in Ukraine, because the view in Moscow is that the break with the West is for good. There's going to be a long-standing confrontation with the West. I think the Middle East and North Africa is becoming ever more important. Now, that said, of course, the Middle East doesn't have the same priority for Russia as the war in Ukraine which now demands a lot of resources and bandwidth. And of course, that fact does leave an imprint on Russian activities in the region in various ways. The first example is Syria. I would argue that we've seen a certain degree of risk aversion by the Russians in Syria over the past year. There's been some sort of posturing vis-a-vis U.S. forces last summer. But overall, the Russians have been sitting fairly tight, driven by a recognition that they only have so much bandwidth why their military is consumed in Ukraine. The recent vote at the UN Security Council, where the Russians let the cross-border aid resolution for humanitarian aid to be delivered into northwest Syria to let that pass, 
is indicative of that risk aversion, also of a desire not to rock the boat too much with Turkey, which is an important partner to Russia. The second example where the Ukraine war leaves an imprint on Russia's regional policy, I think, is Iran. Here we've seen really a growing alignment between Russia and Iran, partially driven by the requirements of war in Ukraine. Russia has become more reliant on economic but also battlefield support from Iran, procuring drones. And so I think there seems to be a calculation now in the Kremlin that as long as war in Ukraine continues, they need to put a premium on that Iranian partnership. And you also see that play out in talks surrounding the restoration of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, where I think the Russians have been less able and willing to nudge the Iranians towards an agreement. They might, in fact, see utility in the JCPOA being in continued limbo because that generates tensions in the Middle East and consumes U.S. bandwidth. So these are sort of examples where you see the war in Ukraine affecting what the Russians do. There's also a separate question about tools and leverage. I think the Russians, because they're so consumed by Ukraine, have a bit less bandwidth for the Middle East. They've lost some leverage over Iran and Turkey. But in terms of their broad interests and the way they look at the region, I don't think so much has changed. So what does that mean for the future of Syria, where Russia and Iran have an uneasy alliance and arguably we're pushing toward different goals? in Syria. Have the Russians decided to yield the future of Syria to the Iranians? Is this an interregnum where they will try to come back and reimpose their vision? What does both the Russian reliance on Iran for drones and their preoccupation with Ukraine mean for the near-term future of Syria? I don't think the Russians are yielding the future of Syria happily to Iran. It's true that they're perhaps affording the Iranians some greater bandwidth, especially in the southwest of the country. But at the same time, I see the Russians as always concerned with ensuring that there's a certain balance between different external powers in Syria, in this instance, particularly between Iran and Turkey, and at the same time trying to further encourage the normalization of Arab states, and in particular, the Arab states of the Persian Gulf with Syria, in order to take off some of that burden for reconstruction activities in Syria, because for that, surely Russia will have very limited bandwidth going forward while it remains under sanctions by Western countries. So I don't see Russia as yielding too much to the Iranians in Syria. You see a similar dynamic playing out in the South Caucasus, well, we've also seen somewhat reduced Russian bandwidth, especially in Nagorno-Karabakh. And again, this is a region in which the Russians will want the Turks and the Iranians in particular to balance each other out. You mentioned the Russian relationship with the Arabs. How has the Ukraine war changed the way Arab states look at Russia, how they relate to Russia? I'm not sure that the fact that Russia started this war against Ukraine changed Arab perceptions of Russia all that much. First of all, there's been, I think, from the beginning, a widespread perception that the Ukraine war is not their war. It's a sort of NATO-Russia war, a war fueled in part by NATO actions vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I think this perception is sustained perhaps by a tendency to view international politics through the prism of actions driven by great powers and not so much by the agency of small countries. But certainly, I don't think this war has registered as a war over the rules-based international order, as we like to say in Western capitals. 
I think the second thing is that there have been accusations of Western double standards in Arab societies and among Arab elites in terms of how the West has responded to this war and that the West came with this expectancy towards Arab countries to support the West in sanctioning Russia. And that was rightly or wrongly viewed as proof that the West cares much more about wars in its own neighborhood than it does about those in the Middle East. And I think more recently, when we've seen Iranian drones being deployed by Russia in Ukraine and the uproar that generated in Western societies, that again reaffirmed that perception in the Arab Gulf states because they've said, look, we've been sitting here in Riyadh or Abu Dhabi and have contended with Iranian drones and missile strikes for the longest time and you didn't really care. And now that this threat is coming to your neighborhood, you are mobilized. But then a third point here is that, of course, Arab states have pursued their distinct economic, security, political interests with Russia for years. And so they have their own reasons not to antagonize Russia. And I don't think that has changed all that much with the war against Ukraine. For the Egyptians, it's grain supplies or the fact that Rosatom is going ahead, from all we know, with building the El Daba nuclear power plant. For the Saudis or the Emiratis, perhaps more alignment in global oil markets or business ties. And there's a reluctance to give up those interests. Now, I do think that Arab states worry about the broader implications of this war. They worry about the implications for U.S. bandwidth to protect their own security, because there is a feeling, actually not just in the Middle East, but also in Asia Pacific, that the requirements for U.S. extended deterrence or for reassuring U.S. allies have gone up with this war against Ukraine in a conventional war waged under the shadow of nuclear blackmail. And so I think Middle Eastern states worry about the robustness of U.S. conventional security guarantees, but that is not just a product of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It reflects more longstanding concerns among the Arab states. And so I think that the war against Ukraine has sort of amplified pre-existing concerns. But I do think that for all these reasons that I just mentioned, non-alignment by the Arab states in this great power competition will be fairly durable. I'm hard-pressed to see circumstances under which the Arab states will sort of drop Russia and go all in with the Western camp or the United States. If I mull over this question, I can basically see two circumstances that could flip that. And they're fairly extreme circumstances. The first is Russian nuclear use over the war in Ukraine. I think that would reshuffle the cards because it would be seen as such a taboo break. And the second circumstance would be very clear indications, which I don't think we've seen to date, that Russia is not just torpedoing diplomacy on the Iran nuclear dossier, but in fact really actively assisting an Iranian nuclear weapons program and Iranian nuclear weaponization. I think that could change sentiments, but short of that, I don't see this balancing act by the Arab states ending. Where do you see the Russia-Iran relationship going in the longer term? I mean, let's say we get through the war. You say that there's a durable Russian split with the West. Does that mean that Russia and Iran grow durably closer? And does that create a certain amount of distance between the Arab states and Russia? It is an excellent question. And I think one of the most pertinent questions to reflect on. I think, first of all, I am among those who believe that this war in Ukraine will last for a long time, potentially. And that Russia's stand-up with the West will last for a long time. And I do think 
that against that geopolitical backdrop, Russia has taken a decision to put a premium on closer partnership with Iran. You see it play out in many different areas on the economic front, the sheer activity that has been going on in recent months with several energy projects coming online or being discussed in the Iranian upstream and downstream sector, basically talk on projects that had been stalled for a long time, because quite frankly, the Russian-Iranian economic relationship wasn't all that interesting for the longest time, and there was more talk than action. But there appears to be a shift. There's also efforts to facilitate trade, both logistically and financially. Financially, for instance, with the Russian MIR payment system being integrated with the Iranian payment system. But there's also reports about the two countries spending billions of dollars to facilitate trade across the Caspian. And if you just monitor the relationship and see with which frequency senior Russian officials are now visiting Tehran, there really seems to be a qualitative change. Now, the most important area where this is playing out is the military defense relationship. I've already mentioned Russia's procurement of Iranian drones. There is this worry that Russia might procure missiles as well, which would be seen as another game changer, but also that Russia in return will give military assets to the Iranians that they've always withheld, that they were never willing to give to Iran, even though the Iranians were asking for them, including helicopters, air defense systems, and then, of course, the Su-35 fighter jet, which has been in the news quite a lot in recent weeks. Now, I think that while there's this war in Ukraine, the Russians will cater to the Russian-Iranian partnership. Whilst they remain reliant on Iran for weapons, they will seek not to antagonize the Iranians. That will have an effect on the JCPOA-related diplomacy. What will also happen is that there will be a recalibration of leverage in what was previously really more of a patron-client relationship. There's now a feeling when you see Russian analysts writing about this, that the Iranians can simply ask for more from Russia than was the case before this invasion. Now, does all of that mean that Russia will come to see Iran as a full-fledged ally? I don't think so. I do think there is a qualitative shift in the relationship, but I just cannot see Russia wanting to risk its ties with other actors in the region, Turkey, the Israelis, and the Arab states of the Persian Gulf. And so the Russians will try to walk that tightrope and balance between those competing interests. Now, whether they will be successful in that is another matter, but I think that's what the Russians will try to do. We've been talking at the strategic level, at the tactical level, the Russians used private military contractors in Syria, in Libya. They are using them in Ukraine. What does the Ukraine war mean for Russia's use of these contractors in ongoing conflicts? And what does it mean for the future use of these contractors in Middle Eastern conflicts? Indeed, we've seen Russian PMCs deployed in recent years, not just in Syria and Libya, but also in the Central African Republic and Mali and Sudan. And those deployments have been relatively cheap and sort of low responsibility from a Russian viewpoint. You could give those PMCs sort of second-rate weapons from Russian stockpiles. They could be sent at relatively low cost, at sort of minimum burden to the Russian military. And of course, you had this added advantage of plausible deniability on the Russian side. Now, what we've seen since the invasion, I think, looking at the latest numbers, 
is some reduction in PMC Wagner deployments in particular in Syria and Libya, though I wouldn't say that those drawdowns have threatened the general durability of Russian presence in either country. So looking at Libya and the latest estimates, I think by the end of last year, there was an estimate that around 2,000 PMC personnel remained in Libya at the various air bases that Russia controls. And on the other hand, we've heard of very high PMC casualties in Ukraine that Russia has had to contend with, especially in recent weeks in the cities of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. Casualties in the thousands have been reported. Now, what does that mean for the future? I don't think taking everything together, that we should discard Russia's bandwidth to deploy PMCs in the future, including in the Middle East. First of all, U.S. intelligence has recently indicated that Wagner is still ramping up its activities in theaters outside Ukraine. I think given the scale of Wagner's activities in Ukraine, and given the connections that leadership of PMCs in Russia enjoy with the Kremlin, you can also be fairly confident that their influence in the overall Russian system of power is set to grow going forward. Wagner opened up a center in St. Petersburg in November, and that was widely publicized. So there seems to be sort of more confidence and Russia being more comfortable with the growing public profile of these PMCs, which sort of suggests almost more of a normalization of that practice. And if we assume a long war in Ukraine, Russia will simply have reduced conventional military bandwidth for theaters other than Ukraine. So it will have to rely more on, call it hybrid, call it gray zone tools to exert influence elsewhere. And that toolbox will include things like disinformation, like electoral meddling, like cyber, but it will also continue to include PMC deployments to the extent that Russia sees it as useful. Anna Nutter, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed Dr. Note's analysis of how the war in Ukraine affected our assumptions about Russia and the Middle East, specifically the sense that we're likely to see closer partnership between Russia and Iran. But now what I'm left craving is the so what factor. What should U.S. policymakers do about the growing friendship? Or at least, how should it influence their calculus? How does it go? The first step in fixing a problem is admitting you have one. I think for a long time, the U.S. has underplayed Russia's potential role in the region, or the friendship, as you would put it, between Middle Eastern countries and Russia. President Obama famously dismissed Russia as a regional power that was supposed to be quite dismissive. The late Senator John McCain called it sort of a glorified gas station. And it makes sense because Russia's GDP ranks somewhere between New York and Florida's. But I think you can say that Russia's been punching above its weight for quite some time now. And that started with the quite decisive and aggressive military intervention in Syria. But it has since expanded with Russia's use of hybrid war and, and other tools that, that Hannah noted, which include private military contractors, but they also include very successful disinformation campaigns, quite successfully using their media outlets like RT and Sputnik, which in Arabic regularly outperform Western media outlets that are similar. 
And I think that Middle Eastern governments have started to see the value in kind of overplaying, I would say, Russia's role in the region. And so that has also made it rather more effective than you would think for Russia. It's long seemed to me that Russia is really a spoiler in the Middle East. It can't make things happen. It can prevent things from happening. It can move failed situations in a direction that helps Russia marginally. But I think ultimately, Russia doesn't have much of a positive message, doesn't have much of a positive thing to deliver to the region. And I think that in the longer term, a Russia-Iran partnership isn't durable. There's a lot of bad blood between Russia and Iran. At this point, they are both looking at a durable estrangement from Western powers. And that can give them some overlap. But I think in terms of both what Russia can do for Iran, I think you have two outcasts who are working more with each other. In terms of Russia's broader role in the region, I think Russia can help drive a wedge between Arab states and the United States. But I don't think that's replaced by a closer relationship with Russia. I think it's replaced by an Arab world that is more untied, but also less protected because it has more transient transactional relationships with lots of powers. And well, I think a lot of them find that very attractive in the near term and probably inevitable in the longer term. I think that attitude will have consequences for Middle Eastern states, and you're going to see it in U.S. policy going forward. Yeah, I would agree, looking at the limitations of that over the long run. That said, I think that increasingly, as the United States uses sanctions as part of its toolbox, we will see probably the linking of sanctioned entities like Iran, like Russia working together, and then others that could potentially be sanctioned or more heavily sanctioned like China, but others that have traditionally been U.S. allies, sort of capitalizing on that. And you see the examples of that with India and China getting cheap energy resources or military sales and things like that. So we're gradually seeing the emerging of this multipolar world. And a lot of it is sort of the West and the rest. And I think in answer to your question of what the U.S. should do about it is to make sure that it doesn't look like it's the West and the rest. And that's difficult. And if you recall the discussion we had with C. Raja Mohan a few weeks ago, India is actively in between. India is one of the great beneficiaries of U.S. sanctions against Russia because India has gotten a lot of cheap energy from Russia. The United States, meantime, is pursuing the quad with India. We have I2U2, the U.S.-India-Israel-UAE partnership. We are drawing closer to India, while India is being very careful to not align itself. And the challenge is we are used to thinking that all of the global economy is lined up with us. And I think what we're seeing with the rise of countries like India, countries like Brazil, large and growing economic powers, suddenly sanctioned states, if they can deal with them, have alternatives. And I'm not sure we've wrapped our heads around a world where the Western economies aren't the whole game and you can actually do really well working with China and India. I mean, that gives you 2 billion consumers. 
Yeah, I'm, the one thing I would say is going back to your initial point, I think that there are limits over the long run of that. But if you're a dictatorship or an authoritarian government, then maybe you're able to stay in power that way, as we've seen rogue states sort of like North Korea, Syria, Iran have been able to survive with those sanctions. The populations, not so much. But I think that's sort of part of the wave of authoritarianism and populism that we've seen across the world as well. John, my ears really pricked up earlier when you said an Arab world that's more untied. In the interview, I was really taken with what Dr. Note said just after your question on Russia's relationship with Arab states, namely that among Arabs, there is this widespread perception that the Ukraine war is not their war. And that made me think of the conversation you had when you were in Kuwait giving a presentation to the Harvard Club, when a Kuwaiti told you that Ukraine is actually quite far away from Kuwait, and so it's not really considered a priority. And your response, of course, was, you know, Kuwait is pretty far from the United States, but that didn't stop us from having Kuwait's back. It strikes me that U.S. policymakers haven't come to terms with this disconnect yet. How would you suggest they get there? I think part of it is just having realistic expectations. There was a time when there was a lot of solidarity in the East Bloc and solidarity in the West Bloc. And people thought there was something bigger that we were all connected to. And that meant that sometimes you had to sacrifice because you're part of a larger project. As I travel around the Middle East, I don't think anybody thinks there's any larger project going on. We are moving into a more transactional world. I was talking to somebody from the White House this week who said that the entire Middle East now is about let's make a deal. And that's their view of what's happening in the region. But in a region that's all about transactional policy, it requires a different U.S. strategy. The challenge is at the same time that people say it's all about let's make a deal. At the same dinner, I was talking to an Arab ambassador who said, we need the United States like it's always been, dependable, reliable. You've been there since 1945. We need you to stay. We need the commitment. We need you to engage with the Iranians. There are all these desires of the governments to have the United States take a permanent role. But in some ways, they want to dance around that permanent role. They want to triangulate around the permanent role. They want to know where it is so they can split the difference with something else. And the Trump administration was a harbinger of the fact that I think any fair assessment of U.S. policy is that going forward, there are going to be fewer durable principles than at any time in the last 75 years. That from one administration to another administration, what could be unshakable could shake pretty hard. And so on the one hand, you have a region that is being more transactional. You have the United States that is much more dynamic. And I think from a U.S. policy perspective, we haven't gotten used to what happens when people think we're more dynamic and we haven't accommodated ourselves to a policy where we're more dynamic. We have an apparatus where you have foreign service officers and they have long careers. By the time they become an ambassador, they've been in there for 25, 30, 40 years. And they want to be able to say, we are here now and in the future. But one of the problems we have is how can you confidently say in the future what our policy is going to be toward any number of 
profound strategic issues. I was with a former White House official in the Bush 43 administration, and we were talking about what the energy transition means for U.S. policy in the Middle East. And he said, if you have a president like Trump or, or DeSantis, you're going to have a president who doesn't believe climate change is real, and therefore your Middle East policy is going to be divorced from anything regarding climate change. So how, if the Biden administration is trying to have a, a Middle East policy that is about helping the region transition to climate change, not that they are, but if you were to adopt that, how does that outlast the administration when you have such profound polarization in our country about the most basic foreign policy issues? And I think that as a country, we haven't wrapped our heads around what the dynamism in our foreign policy means for what our policy can accomplish at any given time. I think our partners and allies in the Middle East are wondering that. I think our adversaries are wondering that. And I think we have to do a better job understanding the implications of that. Yeah, there's a lot of implications of not having continuity in foreign policy or some kind of strategic vision that can run across different administrations. But I think also from the perspective of the global South is the lack of sort of continuity between different cases, right? So I think a lot of people saw the U.S. seeing this war in Ukraine as kind of the ultimate fight for survival of democracy and human rights and all of that. And I think what the rest of the world sees is a huge difference in outrage over things like Syria or Palestine or Iraq, which the U.S. invaded, and Western outrage and the reaction over Ukraine. And I've even heard stories of Central American and Mexican migrants or refugees at the border with the United States seeing the radically different treatment of Ukrainians versus them. And it's I think it's quite stark and it's uncomfortable. And that's always been the case. But I think that the United States needs to better understand that and how adversaries and especially great power competitors will potentially use that whataboutism. And I think that Russia has used it to great effect and I would say that one thing that the United States can do, and this is, I think, quite difficult for the United States because we do have so many resources, whereas Russia doesn't. So it has to use each tool in its toolbox to maximum impact, whereas the United States can sort of throw money, arms, et cetera, around. But I think probably don't learn the lessons of our adversaries in terms of war crimes and disinformation. But I think certainly really capitalizing on everything that we do within the region, because we do do more in the region, in the Middle East and in Africa than Russia. And I think to capitalize on that and to have kind of a different pull that is more beneficial over the long term for countries is one way to go about that. I think the other way to go about that, and I think that the administration did a really great job of this, is that in the aftermath of the Ukraine invasion, we had big food security crisis, which we're still undergoing. And you had Linda Greenfield Thomas, the UN ambassador, really highlight this during UN General Assembly high-level meetings last year. The US administration really took this issue up because they realized that Russia and China could potentially use it and exploit it to tell the world that your people are starving because of US and European sanctions on Russia, right? And they were using that to great effect. To get to the point that Natasha was making just a moment ago, the Indian Minister of External Affairs said with regard to Ukraine, Europe has to grow out of the mindset that Europe's problems are the world's problems, but the world's problems aren't Europe's problem. 
I think that it encapsulates a view that Americans are still struggling to understand, to incorporate into our foreign policy. I think the reality is countries like India, countries like Brazil, countries like China are not in opposition to the United States, but they simply have their own strategic view and they don't feel this overwhelming solidarity with the United States. As I say, it doesn't have to be hostility, as we often see with Russia. But in the absence of solidarity, how do you make the case for common sacrifice? And I think we're still struggling with the view. We're still struggling with the vocabulary. We're still struggling with what the policies are that can bring people together. We're very good at working with Europe, and Europe really wants American leadership. But Europe is a shrinking part of the global economy. We, frankly, are not going to be the driver of growth of the global economy. We're still the biggest player, but the growth is coming from elsewhere. And we're going to have to continue to adapt to this very, very different emerging world. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. 